You're listening to a podcast from the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference. The 8th Annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at Queen's University Belfast in August 2018. The conference was generously supported by the School of History, Anthropology, Philosophy and Politics, the School of Arts, English and Languages and the Institute of Irish Studies, all at Queen's University Belfast and by Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with HistoryHope.ie. There are now more than 200 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to HistoryHope.ie forward slash podcasts or visit TudorStuartIreland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Dr. Ian Campbell from Queen's University, Belfast. His paper was entitled... Liberalism and Irish Political Thought in the 17th Century. I'm currently writing a history of Franciscan political thought. More precisely, I'm writing about political doctrines that were contained in a particular kind of Franciscan theology called Scotism, and the ways in which these doctrines were taught and argued over in 17th century Rome. I'm concentrating on Rome because the Roman institutions dedicated to theological control and censorship provide me with materials for a reception history. Two Roman colleges sit at the centre of my study. The first is the College of St. Bonaventure, which was founded in the conventual Franciscan convent of Santi Apostoli in 1587. The second is the College of St. Isidore, founded for a community of Irish observant Franciscans in 1625. Despite its name, Scotists had always been in the majority at the College of St. Bonaventure, and important conventional Scotists like Filippo Fabri, Bartolomeo Mastri, and Angelo Volpi all trained there. St. Isidore's was a major centre for the study of Scotist theology from its foundation. The leading personality among the Irish friars, Luke Wadding, was ordered by the Minister-General of the Observance to edit the first full opera omnia of John Donne Scotus in 1633. This was printed in 1639 in 12 folio volumes with very extensive commentaries from Wadding's colleagues Anthony Hickey and John Punch. Franciscans like Fabry, Mastry, Volpi, Hickey and Punch were all busy teachers and indefatigable authors both of long technical works and of more accessible textbooks. And these Franciscans, both observant and conventional, interacted with the Inquisition and the Index in every possible way, both acting as censors and being censored themselves. Now, the purpose of my paper today is to explain why I think this history of mine is a worthwhile thing to do. I'll argue that the history of political thought, as it's practised among English-speaking scholars, is bound to modern liberalism. The history of political thought is a discipline that tends to seek out the antecedents of modern liberal doctrines, like natural rights, the separation of powers, the distinction between religion and politics. There's nothing especially wrong with this, especially since historical disciplines that have nothing to say to the modern world get ditched. But I worry that this attention to the origins of intellectual traditions of which we approve blinds us to the existence of traditions about which we will feel more ambivalent but which are no less important to the modern world, such as state intervention in families and wars 
fought for reasons other than mere self-defence. Subjects that were treated in striking and unusual ways by these Italian and Irish Franciscans. So I'll start by explaining what a liberal history of political thought for early modern Ireland might look like. I recently attempted to write one of these for the Cambridge History of Ireland, a little chapter in there. Then second, I'll place this history of Irish political thought in the Anglophone political thought tradition more broadly. Third, I'll point out a rather alarming, certainly very striking, alternative stream of historical thought, which characterises these phenomena in a very different way. And then finally, at last, I'll get to my primary sources and explain what the Italian and Irish Franciscans I mentioned above can contribute to these uh, conversations. So I had three aims in my chapter in the Cambridge History of Ireland. I want to explain that scholasticism and humanism were not at odds in early modern Ireland, and that both of these sets of concepts and ways of speaking were often understood by contemporaries to be congruent with the English common law. And then that there was a distinct break between this largely coherent world of older learning and the new world of the early Enlightenment, which was indeed meaningfully secular for the first time. Now, by scholasticism, I meant the Latin learning of the universities in general, and the learning of the Catholic universities in particular. There had been a reorientation of Catholic theology towards intensely practical questions to do with the rights and wrongs of laws, states, and empires during the 16th century. And this was a tradition from which even Irish Protestants frequently borrowed. Uh, Felix spoke about this earlier on today. Crucially, mainstream Catholic scholasticism insisted on the fundamental legitimacy of non-Catholic laws and non-Catholic states, a fact that is vital to understanding the 17th century Irish Catholic elite. Now, all these ways of speaking, scholasticism, humanism, the common law, the Enlightenment, were bluntly functional in that they could be used by Englishmen to advance imperialist projects, but they could also be used by Irishmen to defend themselves against those imperialist projects. But at the same time, the fact that Irish and English, Catholic and Protestant shared many ways of speaking about political life meant that they were not necessarily, they were not determined or necessitated towards conflict by political ideologies or even necessarily by religion. This emphasis on the contingency rather than the necessity of conflict between these groups is, of course, also the mark of that liberal stream of Irish political history that we commonly label revisionist. Now, my story about Irish intellectual life in the 16th and 17th centuries is largely in accord with the important account of the origins of modern political theory, which Quinton Skinner first published in 1978. Skinner thought that 17th century English Protestants borrowed a great deal from the great Catholic scholastics of the late 16th and early 17th centuries, often Jesuits like Francisco Suarez or Cardinal Robert Bellamy, who would emphasise the human ability to found laws and states um, independent of God's direct command. Pleasing to God, certainly, but independent of his direct command. This process of intellectual traffic between Catholics and Protestants resulted in John Locke's two treatises of government, providing the intellectual structures that underlay the Revolution of 1688 and, indeed, the American Constitution of 1789. 
Jesuit political thought was thus important to Skinner's historical project. And indeed, he took this Jesuit political thought as paradigmatic of early modern Catholic political thought more generally. Prestigious Jesuits like Bellarmine, building on the theology of Thomas Aquinas in the 1580s, saw a strong, natural category in human life in which God left humans, whether pagan or Christian, free to make their own laws and states. The fact that one might be a pagan of some sort or even a Protestant heretic did not make one any less a legitimate lord or prince. And this completely ruled out justifying war on the basis of difference of religion alone. So it's easy to see how Skinner and others thought this strong natural category might easily have been transformed into a strong secular category from which God and the sacred had been drained completely. Now Skinner was, perhaps inadvertently, quite in tune with contemporary developments in German historical life. During the same years, Heinz Schilling had developed his confessionalization thesis. Max Weber had famously argued that Protestantism, rather than being an anti-modern force, destined to be swept away by the European Enlightenment, had in fact contributed to capitalistic modernity. Schilling and his allies argued that all the major early modern branches of Christianity, Reformed, Lutheran, Catholic, made vital contributions to the tight integration of states and societies in Western Europe. The breakdown of medieval Christendom into a series of territorial churches, whether Anglican, Gallican, Lutheran or Josephist, provided nascent national states with powerful resources to aid state formation and social disciplining. Without these territorial churches, goes the argument, the modern state could not have thickened as it did. Like Skinner, Schilling and his allies emphasised parallel developments and functional similarities between Catholic and Protestant social, political and economic life. And according to Schilling, this contributed to a liberal future, because this confessional age, according to Schilling, lasted only from 1555 to 1648. He argued that during the Thirty Years' War, the Germans realised that confessional conflict could result only in total devastation, which encouraged less interventionist varieties of Christianity, like pietism, and created the cultural impulse of the European Enlightenment and secularisation, in the sense of the slow draining of God from the political sphere. Schilling's version of the confessionalization thesis thus contributed to a liberal account of European history not very different to that of Quentin Skinner. But a wide range of important thinkers and scholars have found this account of secularization very unsatisfying. Perhaps most famously and problematically, the Nazi jurist Karl Schmidt argued that all modern political concepts of any importance were merely lightly secularized theological concepts. Schmidt's aims in advancing this argument were sinister ones. He wanted to establish that because of the theological origins of modern European political cultures, those cultures always naturally required a god-like sovereign, free of law, at their centre, otherwise they would freeze up into rights conflicts and then collapse into chaos. Now the difficulty is that there's some quite good empirical support for Schmidt's historical premise. Quite apart from the importance of different varieties of national churches, territorial churches, across 19th century Europe, 
romantic nationalists all over the continent agreed that there was indeed something sacred about any state that embodied its local national spirit. And Italian scholars like Emilio Gentile especially have made an impressive case for the identification of the 20th century totalitarianisms as political religions. Certainly Schmidt has become an intensely fashionable political theorist among those who feel that while the liberal interpretation of European history as a process of rationalization and secularization might be very well-meaning, it does not adequately explain the boiling, spitting cauldron of competing nationalisms that we have, in fact, experienced. One might make the same observation about the liberal interpretation of Irish history. There are different ways of coping with Schmidt's thesis. I will describe what I think is the best one. Paolo Prodi, an Italian historian of great range and power, who died in 2016, argued that what really mattered in early modern Europe was not the creation of areas of human life drained of God, but rather the movement of sacred power from churches to states, so that the state or nation became a sacred thing. Prodi argued that it was a separation between church and state and between sacred and profane power that gave European civilization its characteristic dynamism and prevented it from ossifying in the Chinese manner. This was Prodi's Rise of the West thesis. With the Gregorian reform in the 11th century, the church had gathered a great deal of sacred power to itself. After the Reformation, that sacred power began to drift back to secular monarchs and states, resulting in the semi-sacralized nation-state of the 19th and 20th centuries. And if one allowed the state to become the solitary origin of moral legitimacy in a society, the result would be the kind of disastrous political religions that almost destroyed Europe during the 20th century. Now, Prodi, Prodi was a dedicated Catholic, and he was trying to defend the position of the Christian churches in the modern world by suggesting that liberal democracies needed the churches to, in some way, contain the sacred. I'm not sure about that argument. Nevertheless, I find his historical uh, scheme very useful. He gives us a way of analysing the complex relationship between religious and nationalist sentiment, and he acknowledges state sacralization as a phenomenon without insisting, a la Schmidt, that this is our inevitable destination. So... How might Prodi's insights be used to inform a broader research agenda for the history of political thought, taking it beyond the mere celebration of Anglophone liberalism? Well, the first thing, I think, is that we have to think much harder about the confessionalization thesis. I, uh, we all use that word quite frequently, but I don't, think we ha- I don't often see Anglophone scholars thinking hard about how the state uh, co-opts the church and uses the church to forward its aims and how the church collaborates in this process. Um, And certainly Prodi's thesis demands that we attend to moments at which sacred power seems to drift from churches towards or interstates. Now, from my point of view, this means attending to non-Thomist Catholic theologians, theologians who do not follow the theology of Thomas Aquinas, who drew the distinction between nature and supernature very differently to the Jesuit theologians who dominate the Anglophone account of intellectual life in Catholic Europe. The Franciscans, who followed Scotus, 
offer us an alternative vision of early modern life, a vision that seems to foreshadow the sacralized and hyper-interventionist state of the 19th and 20th centuries. I will gallop over three topics that were being taught in St. Isidore's College, Rome, in the 1640s. The master's right to break up slave marriages, the prince's obligation to baptize Jews by force, and the validity of holy war. The Scotists placed more emphasis on God's commands than they did on the natural law, and this had the effect of narrowing the scope of the natural law and increasing both the role of divine commands in human life and the role of the positive law made by the prince in human life. So, for example, Aquinas and the Jesuits taught that marriage belonged to the natural law, whereas slavery belonged only to human positive law. And because a natural right always trumped a right derived from merely positive law, it would be quite wrong for masters to break up slave marriages by selling the husband to France and the wife to Africa. 17th century Jesuits argued bitterly about this amongst themselves because forbidding the breaking up of slave marriages would have left the Papal States uh, Navy very short of galley slaves. But for Scotists, the problem was rather simpler. Marriage did not really belong to the natural law at all. And so the question of whether a master might sell a husband to France and the wife to Africa had to be resolved as a conflict of rights. The master had a right in his slaves, and the husband and wife had rights in each other's bodies to be resolved with regard to the common good of the state overall. But no one in this conflict had a natural right that might trump someone else's merely positive law right. Now, the variations between Jesuit and Scotus treatments of slave marriages were fairly subtle, as I've described them. But Scotus advocacy of the forced baptism of Jewish children was totally unlike anything to be found in Jesuit theology. Scotus theologians agreed that while Jewish parents might in some circumstances have a natural right in their children, God had a supernatural right in those children, and the secular prince was obliged to intervene to support God's supernatural right and confiscate and baptize the children. This was a live question in 17th century Italy, because it was fairly common for members of the public to one way or another grab Jewish children and baptize them. The Scotist argument appalled Jesuit theologians, not just because it violated the natural rights of parents over children, but also because it gave the prince a role unmediated by the church in the enforcement of the supernatural. Holy war is another instance of real difference between the Jesuits and the Scotists. The Jesuits denied that the justice of a war might be derived from difference of religion alone, while at the same time often admitting that wars fought in defense of religion were just, and also adding that the Pope had the right to depose monarchs if he were drawing his subjects into heresy, vide James I. But the Scotists understood the divine command to evangelize as more important than any natural right, and so the Scotists frequently advocated holy wars in the sense of fighting a war in order to 
impose compulsory Catholic preaching on a heretical or pagan population. And just as in the case of the secular prince intervening in the Jewish family to baptize children, so in the case of holy war, all the key judgments were left to the secular prince without any papal involvement. Now, one can imagine an account of this skilltist politics that might condemn it as medieval, bad, old-fashioned, unlike the modern and good Thomism and the stuff advocated by the Jesuits. But to me, this picture of a human society awash with rights conflicts in which princes were obliged to intervene between husband and wife, intervene between parent and child, and obliged to make interventions outside their jurisdictions to enforce ideological conformity, all that seems to me to be fiercely modern. I will conclude. I've argued that very much of the history of political thought that one can read in English is not, in fact, a history of political thought in general, but a history of liberal political thought in particular. Indeed, it is usually a celebration of it. This is all very well, but this liberal history does not sufficiently account for the long-term development of romantic nationalism in Europe, an ideology that dominated the 20th century and lives on into the 21st. If Prodi is right, and romantic nationalism can be said to involve a, a process of state or national sacralization, then we ought to be alert to tendencies in the churches that transferred sacred powers to the monarch. These scotists provide vivid examples of just that process. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 200 podcasts, from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.